I want to start with a quote from Father Zacharias. In paradise, in the house of the Father, man was given the highest honor to dwell together with God and converse with him face to face. The vision of God was his nourishment, and it was his luminous garment. But that really sums up what we're about in the Christian life uh, and why we are about it. Uh, I'm going to, I want to do something very briefly before I get started on today's lesson. Because uh, the last time it was asked how 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 Genesis chapter six uh, can uh, be harmonized with some of the things that we've said about the go the gospel accounts and and Christ, uh, and I mentioned that I probably wouldn't be able to stand it and that I'd have to I'd have to find out what the answer was. And I don't know if this is an answer, but it's a start. Uh, <clears throat> So I guess it, it, the question would be, how is God's love in the New Testament and God's uh, wrath in the Old Testament reconciled? Or how are they reconciled? Uh, and, and here's sort of a partial answer. Uh, for one thing, it's an antinomy. And the truth of the Christian faith is antinomic. That is, two seeming opposites held in tension. I've talked to you about this before, and I cannot but reiterate it strongly. Understanding this concept is the essence of understanding Christian doctrine. Two seeming opposites held in tension. Uh, so you have God's grace and God's activity and man's response. Uh, God's love, God's wrath. Uh, some people in today's society, a lot of people who call themselves Christians in today's society, do not want to talk about God's wrath in the day of judgment. So they drop that concept or de-emphasize it to the point that all you have is God's love. The sweet sweetness, you know, the, the nice guy who's just dripping emotionalism and sentimentality. We don't get that account from Christ. Look at Matthew 24 and 25. It's not like that at all. And yet the God of love is clearly emphasized by Jesus. It's a both-and proposition. Two seeming opposites held in tension. Uh, so, for, for one thing, in in... Genesis, where and the emphasis that that I was asked, the question that was posed was how is how does Genesis chapter six uh, and the introductions to the Noah story gel with Christ as being the God of compassion and mercy? Uh, so, in any way, I want to give you several answers that that pretend to this, and and really, one needs to understand that we hold these things in tent, and we hold these things in our minds, and we let them affect the way we see this reality, the way we perceive this, the way we experience this, which we have, we have beheld. And it's not our opinion, it's the opinion of the faithful, those who have gone before us. See, our opinions don't matter unless they, they, they concur with the opinions of those who have gone before us, the truth that's been handed on to us. We as Christians come here and we are handed the truth. This is the truth. Uh, and we believe, I believe, O Lord, and I confess that thou art truly the Christ, the Son of the living God. We, we believe what's been handed on to us. We don't create something new, which a lot of American Christians or people who call themselves Christians in America seem to think that's what they do. It's, you know, I've heard people say, well, my God is not like that. Well, <laughs> if that's the case, and your God is probably an idol. Uh, our God is all going to be the same. God is only one, so he's only going to reveal himself one way. Now, each of us are different individuals, and so in that revelation, we may experience them different ways, but they're all in harmony one with another. They're not conflicting. So we can't have a belief that God is incarnate, becomes human flesh, and he's never incarnate. You can't have that. It's one or the other, and there's a risk involved either way in believing. So in any case... <clears throat> In terms of how can the God's, how is it God's love in the New Testament is reconciled with God's wrath in the Old Testament, the Noah stories? Uh, well, first and foremost, the stories that we have from Noah, in, in fact, from Noah are basically from the fallen perspective. Remember, we have to look at the overall picture, the beginning and the end. The beginning is what God creates in the beginning of creation, before the fall, before sin is introduced into reality. And Revelation 22, 21 and 22 is what culminates at the end, when God reconciles and restores everything to its proper place. 
That's the beginning and the end, the antiphons of creation, if you will. They are outside. Remember, antiphons are something we use liturgically. Here's where the faith is, that liturgics uh, uh, accentuates or explains theology. Theology explains liturgics. And so the antiphons, antiphons are little hymns, one verse, sometimes in the Eastern Rite, there's sometimes many verses, uh, but one verse uh, hymns that give a perspective to the to the a portion of scripture. Uh, so if you take, uh, I, I don't have the examples here in front of me. I wish I did. But but if you have, does anybody have a, a Benedictine diurnal in on hand? Is there any hard nosed soul here who just happens to have a Benedictine diurnal? Uh, the answer is no. I'm just disappointed. I thought there'd be some. I thought there'd be at least one fanatic around here. Uh, yeah, I know, I know. I just, I just, I tell you, or as Jed Clampett would say, my, one of my favorite saints, pitiful, pitiful. <laughs> Those of you who are laughing and giving yourselves away because you know who he is. <laughs> okay, so, so how are these two things reconciled? Well, number one, the stories are, are compiled from a fallen perspective after the fall. And so that will color in many ways what is being seen, just as we look at this truth from, sin, from a sinful perspective, from a fallen perspective. It's hard for us to see the truth objectively, that is, in, as it is, regardless of where we are and how our slant uh, affects the way we see it. Many of the Noah stories uh, in the Greek text of the Old Testament are not nearly as emphatic on the theme of God's punishment as in the Hebrew text. And for any of you who might think, well, the Hebrew text precedes, yes, but the, the, the Old Testament text of the early church is the Greek Old Testament. The Greek translation of the Hebrew, which was made in the second century BC, maybe the early part of the third, was over a hundred years, maybe a little more, when, when sections of it were put together. And so the Old Testament of the early church is the Greek version, and it's a little softer. Now, I don't want to get into this, the, the text, but there's reason to believe, to hold in question some aspects of the Hebrew text, but that's another story. So in the Greek text, the, 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 the emphasis upon, upon God's wrath is, 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 is modified. It's not nearly as intense as it is in the Hebrew text. Uh, and I guess one of my points on that other thing is that it can be shown literarily that the rabbis who created the Masoretic tax, text for the Old Testament Hebrew actually had an agenda whereby they could change the meaning of the text without changing the content of the text. And it can be proven historically. Now, no, don't take a bad thing. Well, we got to go get those Jews. Well, that's, <laughs> we are Judaism, in case you haven't figured it out. That's, that's another part of it. So in any case, the, new t the, the, the Greek texts are not nearly as emphatic on the whole notion of God's punishment. So God's mercy, and God's mercy is such that he doesn't destroy, in the Noah stories, God's mercy is such that he doesn't destroy all of humanity. He leaves a faithful remnant alive. And they are, they are preserved. And the lineage of humanity from Adam is preserved according to this story. And in this story, and in the story of the falls, God sets in motion certain consequences that we, I, we saw this in the, I was looking at this this morning in the, in the text, uh, <clears throat> in the, litur the liturgy text. Uh, God sets in motion certain consequences. It could be said then that the flood was a consequence rather than a punishment a consequence of human sin. Uh, consequently, consequently, uh, when we talk about the fall of man, uh, how do I say this? I actually prayed before I came here that I wouldn't have a loss of thought, and it just happened. So last time I got asked a question, and I couldn't answer it, so I'm falling down in my old age. This is proof of the fall of man, I'll tell you right there. Uh, this one's going down. Sin does exist. Uh, certain consequences are set in motion. Those consequences are a product of God's love. 
See, we think of God's love as being, oh, he's nice and he pats us on the back and he treats us real well and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes, like a good parent who lets a child suffer the consequence of an activity, sometimes letting us experience the consequences of our sins is for our benefit. So we need to see that we need to see the story of the of Noah in chapter six to eight of Genesis from the perspective of the early church. And that it wasn't that God was coming down and he's killing everybody because he's really hacked off and he's so mad at everyone. He just wants to get them. How many of you have that image of God? This. If you haven't, you might someday. So I don't know. I hope you don't. Uh, but at the same time, God is not this, the, the, the gushy, goody two-shoes that, that modern American society wants to see. Yeah, and, and again, there's an antinomy. God is the God of judgment and he's the God of mercy and love. There is the truth, and look what it looks like, the cross. Don't ever forget that, because every heresy is an emphasis of one aspect of the truth at the expense of another. So basically, in terms of the cross, you got somebody hanging like this. By the way, that's sort of like the way the image of Jehovah's Witnesses of the cross. And they don't believe in the divinity of Christ, by the way, so they're not Christians. So it's like this, two seeming opposites held in tension. Nearly everything in the truth is like this. And so when we read the story of Noah, uh, <clears throat> rather than God is mad at all of creation, he leaves a remnant. He leaves a remnant alive. So the story goes. Uh, and that remnant is the line through which, through which creation is restored. Now that's a type also of us in reality as a remnant of creation being restored. Uh, go ahead and introduce your question. Oh, no, I, 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 I'm curious, you know, what you think of this as, I put it, it said that someone, that perhaps God was merciful in destroying everyone because they were, they were, it was only going to get worse. And he said, let's just end it all now. <clears throat> you guys are just going to screw it up even more. If I don't think Because, you know, <laughs> so being minded that the time on earth is there, I mean, God's saying, let's just, let's just wipe it out now. Well, sort of, yeah, in a way, sort well, of. Well, you know, one of the best examples of that that you could go with, and what you're saying, take death. Yeah. The church has always revealed to us that death was not a punishment, but a mercy of God. Because if man chose apart from life himself, God, and were to exist for eternity... It would be hell for man. See, the absence of God is that hell, right? So you see what I'm saying that goes along with your thinking. Lock on to that aspect of it. Anything that would keep man apart from God, God in his mercy does something to thwart. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Think of it in those terms. Rather than punish for yeah. having fallen short. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. different, yes. And in that same light, the reason we see the Noah story as wrathful is because we don't keep to that view of death. Absolutely. We see God killed them, and killing them is a bad thing. And yeah. I've been asked that question. I've been asked about when God has Israel go into the promised land, killing everybody. What kind of God is this? It's the God that would appear to everyone that he had killed in Hades and release them. Yeah. Also, so. if you look at those texts, he, he, they are told not to slay anyone who converts, uh, anyone who doesn't resist them, only the ones who violently resist. Yeah. So we don't ever read that story. We only see the part that says he went in there and he told them to kill everybody. It's, so. it's very interesting that you bring that up because I was having a conversation with one of my Calvin, Calvinist friends. Yeah. And they're very big on the rest of Absolutely they are. But when you explain it, when you... When you talk about Christ going to hell, and they get very uncomfortable. And he, he starts squirming in his seat. Yeah, because it, it's a very, you know, it, it's a very, yeah. It destroys the key concept that they have bought into, which is heretical. Yeah. That God handpicked a few to be saved. But when God goes by Christ into Hades where every soul until that moment who had passed on existed imprisoned and, and was lost and was lost 
reveals himself, we, we hear preached to them, and then he leads that captive in his train to glory. It destroys that Calvinistic approach to understanding God. Well, there was a reason for me going in the direction I was going, and I, I didn't do it. So I best move on while, while the moving's good. Uh, go ahead. Did you have another one? No, I said I'm sorry. I feel like I'm responsible for it. No. No, 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 no. I brought that up because he's talking about the intimity. It's like if you, if you drop that merciful part, then that's what you have. That's exactly right. You have this pessimistic view that the West develops as a result of the reformation of, of man. Yeah. And if you drop the other one, you don't have the healthy and holy fear of God that drives you to him to be made whole. Yeah, we, we really do have to we do have to understand that God is a God of judgment and a God of mercy. That's the antinomy. So, you know, at any given time, any one of us will lean one way or the other. I know that in my own Christian journey, there was a time when God was the God of judgment. He was going to get me. But my understanding was sort of like this. He was only the God of judgment. By God, I was ruined. Uh, and I used to get really, I really had a struggle. It was a spiritual struggle for me to learn one day that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and that this was the balance. Of course, then I swung to this extreme. You know, and, and really, it's an antinomy. It's antinomic. It's both. Um, to held together in truth. And that's what keeps us balanced. We, and everything, I would dare say everything that we learn in the faith is like this. It has an antinomic quality, and we have to learn that. And all the denominations we see in America today are a result of people dropping some aspect of a truth. God is Trinity, but he's not one. God is one, but he's not Trinity. Uh, God is not either of those. Uh, so you, we, can, we have to be careful. There's a reason that the, the narrow way is the way of antinomic truth. So we have to be careful that we learn what the church tells us. Narrow is the way, Jesus said, not wide is the way. He said, wide is the way that leads to hell. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. It is a narrow road, and we have to walk, as I put once, wrote it once, walk a tight rope in the darkness. <laughs> That's sort of what it's like holding that antinomic truth. Now, understand that at any given time, any one of us may, may vacillate from one side to the other. I know that in my own life, sometimes I've been on the mercy side of, you know, God's judgment and God's mercy. I've been sort of on the mercy side. A few times in my life, I've been sort of leaning over to the, to the, to the judgment side. As long as we hold the truth there, we're okay. Uh, and there are, also, there are also parameters to that. It only goes so far. Uh, you know, like Rev Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof. I love Rev Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof. Um, when he's, you know, on the other hand, on the other hand, on the other hand, on the other hand. And finally, he says, there is no on the other hand. There comes a time when we get out. I wish I had a blackboard now. I was trying to stay away from those kinds of things. If you look at the truth is two seeming opposites, as I mentioned, held in tension. And if you draw a line on a board, then you have the truth is right down the middle. And the two seeming opposites are the, the, on either side of that line down the middle. And so the truth will go like, will look like this to each one of us, although it's both of those together, God's mercy and God's judgment. But there's a limitation to it. And what's happened in the modern age is that people have so emphasized God's mercy to the exclusion of judgment because a few decades back, God's judgment was what most American Christians thought about and heard. For many of us been around a while, we got used to sermons on the judgment of God. Uh, so it swung to the opposite extreme, and it swung to a point in which it's moved way beyond the limitations of that. And so the whole picture is whatever the right was at once upon a time, and way out here in the middle is over here. And the middle keeps moving farther outside the left parameters of the faith. You understand what I'm saying? And so eventually what constitutes the truth is something that is not the truth at all. And that's where we are in American society. And most people outside the church view reality from that distorted perspective. And they want us to do so. And when we say no, because we understand the ramifications of it, <laughs> people get angry at us and you're, you're narrow-minded and you're bigoted and things like this. Well, it's not true. Simply not true. 
So in any case, let's get on to the task at hand. Now I'd like to leave you dangling there for a while. Uh, it's cruelty and inhuman, isn't it? Uh, but you know, we're only touching on things in these classes and we're, we're, we're just skimming the surface. This material is eternal. And so the depth of it is endless. You know, you, you, you probably, some of you heard me say, I have an image of myself since I love books of, of eternity being me in a library in which, the, which, the, which is of the works of God and the library shelves extend up into clouds and disappear and they extend off in this distance into clouds and disappear. And I'm on one of those librarian ladders stretched out trying to find this obscure volume and all the works are the mighty works of God. I have an image like that. <laughs> That's really the way it is. And we're trying, to, we're trying to explain that in this little space of our understanding. How do you do that? We only touch the surface, give us ideas uh, and hope that we can somehow grasp the magnitude of what it is we're saying. And that's true of all that we've been looking at over the past weeks. Well, today I wanna to talk about the ancient priesthood of, of Judaism and, and what it tells us about our own priestly ministries. In any case, <clears throat> you all know that there was an Old Testament temple but when, we, when one studies the Old Testament temple, he studies several time periods. First of all, the period of, of, of the tabernacle, which was a type, it was a portable temple that was established when the Exodus took place. And they moved it around and it was a tent and it was put up in place when they camped somewhere and then taken down and they did their sacrifices and their prayers in front of the tabernacle. So the, the time period of the tabernacle would be roughly the 1200 to the 900, somewhere in that vicinity, maybe a little earlier, depending on, on a lot of things. Then eventually they got in the land we know of Israel today, uh, and there were several temples built for a while, for a few centuries, local temples, based upon the same principles as the tabernacle, except they were stone buildings. And eventually, around 900, in the 900s, we think, uh, or roughly around that time, uh, King David got the idea to have a centralized location, one temple, not several. So they built one in Jerusalem. And that lasted in place till about 586 BC when the Babylonians sacked the city and destroyed the temple because it was so uh, critical to the Jewish people's understanding of who they were. There was no temple for about, well, literally to the day of consecration for nearly 70 years uh, in the sixth century BC. And then the second temple was completed when they were sent back to the land and they rebuilt the temple. And it was never quite as magnificent the second time around, although it was uh, magnificent. Uh, and so you have the second temple period. So the first temple period is about 900 to 586. The second temple period is like 518 to about 70 AD. And then it was destroyed. Uh, and the Babylonian captivity is the time period between 586 and 518. Uh, so when I mentioned those, there's a development going on in there uh, in terms of time frames. Uh, the last time I talked to you about priesthood, and I mentioned priesthood, and, and, and understanding the priesthood is, is important to understanding ancient, this ancient categories. Uh, <clears throat> the, the ancient temple had three categories of, of priests that they understood. There was the high priest sort of like our bishop now. Uh, he's the high priest of all of Israel, all the liturgical celebrations. And then you had the priests, the, the guys who did the most of the work. And then you had the Levites. The Levites were like the acolytes. They were priests of sorts, but they weren't quite the same elevation. Now, there's a whole lot of history involved in this. I'm grossly simplifying. So if, you have, if you've read something, some things on this, you may have some, some acknowledgments to some alternatives. And I don't want to waste time going into it. So you had three categories. The high priest was the head priest who oversaw all the temple activities, and he led the special services in the holy days. So on the day of atonement, it was the high priest who went into the temple with the sacrifice, who went in representing the people, all the people, and came out representing God to all the people. It was the high priest who did that. And then the priest who did most of the sacrifices on behalf of the high priest. 
And then you had the Levites who were the acolytes. They chanted, they did the setup, set up everything. You know, everything has to be set up in there. It doesn't just happen. You know, there are people who have to do setup. And the acolytes, uh, the, the Levites did that. They'd monitored the people. Some of them actually walked around and made sure that people weren't doing things they shouldn't be doing in the temple. Uh, I guess you'd call the ushers might be equivalent to, to the, in today's version, to the- Spiritual bouncers. The spiritual bouncers, yeah. Just, <laughs> let's get that right. I, yeah, there might be some Hebrew term for that or Greek term. I like that. They served as watchmen, making sure that no one came through the doors that didn't belong there. Uh, they cleaned up. And the cleanup was immense after the, a day of sacrifices. And they protected the integrity or the sanctity of the temple. So you have this, this going on. It's a hierarchy. There is no such thing as the church without a hierarchy. There will be the bishop, and there will be the priests, and there will be the deacons, and there will be the people. Uh, it's just the way it goes. It doesn't make anyone better than anyone else. It just makes it different. And, and in fact, the higher up you go, the more the burden is on, on the individual. Uh, so there was a hierarchy. Some of the things to learn about these clergy in the temple, they were from the lineage of Aaron. That is, they were originally descended. They had to prove that they were descended from Aaron. Not just anyone could be a priest. One couldn't just say, well, I think I want to be a priest this week. It didn't work that way. If one wasn't from the house of Aaron, one didn't become a priest. That's all there was to it. Everybody understood it. Uh, so in, in our church, you know, one doesn't just say, oh, I want to be a priest and run down and, and, and he starts his own church and he declares himself to be, it doesn't work that way. He's got to go through a whole series of committees. And number one, he has to be male. It, the, the priest is not open to females. Now, you can say whatever you want about that, but God is not unjust. So if he sets that rule, it's not unjust. Otherwise, God is unjust. But that's the rule. St. John Chrysostom said that 90, something like 99% of all men and all women are not called to be priests. So, so most of us say, okay, that, that eliminates me. It doesn't matter what gender I am. See? So... I'm, I'm using that figuratively, obviously. I didn't think that. Uh, so, when he, so, so not just anyone can become a priest. He had to be born into the line. And, the line, and then he had to prove his genealogy. So he couldn't just say, I'm born of the house of Aaron. He had to be able to prove it. So notice in the Old Testament the number of genealogies. Do you know that when, when I was a young Christian, I started reading the Bible. First time I discovered, oh, Christian reads the Bible. So I had never gotten that before. So I started, you know, for me, start a book, you start at the beginning, right? So, so I start reading, and there are all these genealogies. I'm like, oh, save me, Lord, from all this stuff. You know, and the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke have these long genealogies, and you're just going, oh, and so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so. One of the Marian feasts actually has, that's the Gospel reading. It's one a series of begats. And I'm just save me, save me. What's the point of this? Well, it's to, it's to prove the priestly genealogy, but they offer it from different perspectives. But in the Old Testament, that's part of it, to prove the genealogy. Most instances, there are a few exceptions, but in any case, they had to prove their genealogy. So you couldn't just walk in and say, I'm up for this. One had to be from one of the families. Uh, and they were careful to be able to prove that they were descended from the, one of the early priests named Zadok. Uh, and so the it, Old Testament genealogies were inserted in the texts of the Old Testament to help establish this. They lived, the priests lived among all the tribes of Israel. So when you break ancient Israel down into tribal areas or, or tribes, you find that they are tribal areas. So they lived and there was the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah. And they had their geographical location in ancient Israel. The house of Aaron or Levi did not have that because they were spread out and located among all the tribes, all the tribal areas. That was their, their representation of all the people was a part of, of who they were and their lineage. So, so the Old Testament genealogies were, were inserted to help establish this. And so they lived among all the tribes of Israel, meaning their kingdom was not of this world or understood as the way the rest of the tribes understood it. Uh, their residence was the temple. 
their main residence. Uh, and they represented everybody. And most of them held secular jobs. I remember St. Paul, he was a tent maker. <laughs> uh, and there were great saints who were shipbuilders and, and all kinds of things in the early centuries. They were divided into courses, what we might call tiers of, of or assignments. They called them courses when you translate it into English. They were grouped, they were formed into groups for the purposes of temple service assignments. So <clears throat> not everybody had to be in that one place all at one time. There were, at the time of Christ, some 24 courses. This is arguable because it changes throughout history. Uh, but there were 24 courses at the time of, roughly at the time of Christ. There may have been anywhere from three to 400 priests on any course. Can you imagine three or 400 priests in the church? Well, look at yourselves. Uh, so really, we've got, a, we've got a few, we've got 100 at least. Uh, each course served twice a year. So this might prove the old thing about people showing up priesters, you know, that show up only at Christmas and Easter. Uh, they're following the ancient tradition, I guess. Uh, so don't I'll tell them that. They might feel it, use it as a justification, and we have no defense. Uh, so in any case, each course served twice a year for one week, Friday evening to the following Friday afternoon. Uh, on the annual Feast of the Tabernacles, all the courses were present, all of them. Imagine the temple. I calculated what 24 courses, three to 400 priests per course. That could be anywhere, somewhere in the vicinity of 7,000 priests, priests, not the people, uh, clergy all in there at once. Uh, that would have been pretty crowded. And, and some of the later uh, first century AD sources suggest that they had to, on days, on days of major feasts, they had to, uh, had to usher the people in in stages, three stages, to get all the sacrifices done and get them out of the way. So they came in one door and they, they were instructed to walk around the holy place a certain way and come in where they were supposed to be and then make their sacrifices. And once the sacrifices were completed, they were all ushered out the other side. Well, the next group came in. So it's not like a modern way of doing these kinds of things. Uh, in any case... When they were not on duty, they were expected to pray certain of the temple prayers. And, and, and in the time of the Babylonian captivity, 586 to roughly, what would I say, 518, I think, is the total time frame. Um, the, 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 what became the synagogue began to emerge. What do we do when we don't have a temple? Uh, and so they, they, they prayed some of the temple prayers, did some of the things in terms of prayer and devotion and study that were done in the temple. They couldn't make the sacrifices because everybody understood that only happened in the temple. So, so they began to, the, the, the synagogue tradition began to emerge starting in the Babylonian captivity in the sixth century BC and, and continued to develop up to the time of Christ. Uh, maybe even later, but that's another story. The clergy wore vestments. The high priest wore a white linen garment, what we would call an alb in the Western Rite, uh, with multiple overgarments, including a breastplate that had 12 stones on it, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He represented all, and all were represented in him. He also wore a mitre, which looks a lot like our Eastern Rite bishop's mitre, with the divine name on the front of it. So he represented God. And so on the Day of Atonement, when he went into the temple, he represented all of the people. And this, this is important to remember because it also ex explains the role of clergy in the church. He went in and he represented all of the people. When he came out, he represented God coming out of the temple to the people. So a twofold explanation. And that's true for all of us. We represent all of creation. Each one of us represents all of creation. And each one of us represents God to all of creation. We are like the temple priests, a big order, and we do it with varying levels of success or greater levels of failure. Uh, <clears throat> you had a miter with a divine name on it, pomegranate, pomegranate tassels representing the fruit of the tree of life. Some sources say those pomegranate tassels on the bottom of his vestments were to let you know if he, got, if he stopped moving, he was struck down by the presence of God in the temple, and you drag him out. Uh, so they have a rope wrapped around his way, his legs. So they, if that happened, they could pull him out without going in there. Uh, so I don't know. That's just those are stories that are, grow up around the temple tradition. Uh, all of the priests learned the mystical tradition 
which was thematically related to the creation story. So it might be argued that Genesis 1 and 2, and then hence even Revelation 21 and 22, are part of the, of the mystical tradition of the ancient temple and the ancient relationship to God. Uh, it could be argued. Uh, and they were expected to be able to teach it to others. The priests said the prayers of the sacrifices. They sang the hymns or actually they said some of the prayers of the sacrifices, they sang the hymns. Uh, the Psalter includes many of the ancient temple hymns, and so you get a picture of the temple and what went on when you read the Psalms. Uh, they viewed themselves as representative of all of Israel. And as I've said before, all of us represent all of creation. The concept of, of, of uh, now what's that word, people? Universality, thank you, another senior moment. They're happening today. I'm in a fog today for some reason. Uh, the principle of universality, each one of us represents all of creation and all, and, and all of creation before God and God before all of creation. That's the way we're supposed to be, always. Uh, and so the priests in the ancient temple saw themselves that way. They understood that. They watched over their own souls to ensure ritual purity because they understood you know, it's not just my sins. If I sin, it affects you. It's just the way it is. We don't have to like it, and, and you don't have to crucify me because I'm a sinner. <laughs> we all are. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, we don't sin in vacuums. Everybody is affected. It's just to watch families develop, and we can see that. It's real clear in families. They, they, the kids seem to pick up our worst traits, don't they? It's, it's hard for them to pick up our virtues. They pick up our sins almost like that. It just, gee, it doesn't have to be this way. Do as I say and don't do as I do, my father used to say to me. Uh, I remember that well. Uh, thanks, Dad. <laughs> so in any case, they viewed themselves as representative of all of Israel. So they watched over their own souls to ensure ritual purity. That is that they didn't come before God in the temple in the state of sin, of deliberate sin. Notice in the Orthodox Church, we're really careful about that. It's not that we come having, not, it's not that we show up not having sin, but we come and come repentant, just like, like you were talking about in today, that we, we come and we recognize our sins and we, we repent as we come before God. God imposed the consequences of the fall when Adam did not repent. He offered him a return while he was still in paradise. Now, what would have happened to all of creation if Adam had just said, when God said, Adam, where are you? What'd you do? If Adam had just said, you know, I really goofed up. Uh, and, and I ask you to forgive me. What would happen for all of us if that had been the case? But instead, what did he say? Well, it was the woman that you gave me. Uh, so, and then when she was confronted, she had a chance to save him, and she said, the devil made me do it. So, see, excuse making, that's where we go. That's what we do. Uh, and so... <clears throat> They watched over their own souls to ensure ritual purity, which really meant that honesty with self before God. God already knows. So when we lie to God, we don't fool anybody but ourselves. He already knows. He doesn't even need to ask the question, what would you do and why would you do it? He already knows. He's waiting for us to say, mea culpa. I did it by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. I did it. So they watched over their own souls, the priests would, and there were purification rites involved for that. And their sins were viewed as affecting all of Israel. You know, we have a thing in America that's unfortunate, that we think that we sin in vacuums, that my sin is mine and it only affects me. Wrong. It affects everybody. I mean, think about this. Here I am sitting up here as a priest of the church, and I'm talking to you about this stuff and maybe having an influence on you in some way. And what if my sins are, what if I'm doing this for egotistical, sinful reasons? You could be, dis, you could be led astray. You could be misinformed. You could be, you could, there are number, any number of things that could happen here for this. So you got you to pray for the guys up here. They're talking that they got their acts together because there's a lot at stake. Uh, and so in any case, uh, there, one's sins affect all of Israel. Your sins affect everybody. Look at our kids. <laughs> the family is proof of that. Our kids seem to pick up our worst habits, don't they? I just, 
and you know you can almost name which child which represents which sin and and sometimes it's cross-gender you know so the daughter is like the father and the son is like the mother it's a oh mercy god help us uh, and there were so our sins affect everything so we have to watch over our souls and the temple priests did the same or at least they were supposed to they were priests who, in the mold of Adam at creation, they did what Adam failed to do in his stewardship. So the real essence of the Christian life is to be what Adam failed to be. Christ is the first Adam, or the second Adam, but he's the first Adam of the church restored. He presents the model. So our priesthood is one of the clergy and the people. It's not one or the other. So don't say that it's our job. It is our job. And we are to be the icons of that by leading the way. We are like, I mentioned the last time, something about the Civil War. And, and we are like line officers in the Civil War. You know, when you think of officers being in the back barking orders and the men go out and get themselves <laughs> shot. Well, line officers in the Civil War were out in front of the soldiers, usually with only a saber and no pistol or anything else because their job was to lead the troops. The English line officers in the First World War used to go into battle with a riding stick, and that was it. Uh, and the, as I mentioned last time, the lifespan of an officer, a line officer in the British Army in the First World War was three weeks. So that's what was expected of it. So, so our priesthood is to be, uh, is, is clergy and people. Uh, so you have that kind of expectation too. We can't say, well, it's your, you guys' job. It's for you people. No, it's for each of us. Notice I said each and all. We are expected to be present for the great sacrifice. That's our course. And of course, now it's, it's intensified uh, because it's not just twice a year, but it's as much as possible. It's supposed to be every week, but as much as is possible. Now, Please hear this. I don't want people feeling beaten down or other people condemning others because they're not here every week. There are times when we cannot be here for whatever reason. You know, if you have COVID, you can't be here. We all want you here. <laughs> so, so stay home and do it in good conscience. Uh, <clears throat> so it, it will happen, but we should be here as much as possible. We, we, we tend to find, you know, well, Stayed up last night watching that movie till one o'clock and I just can't crawl out of bed this morning. Well, yeah, you can. All of eternity depends on each one of our parts. All of eternity depends on it. It's that important. It's not something we can discredit as, well, no one will miss me when I'm not there. Uh, that's wrong. God will miss us and he knows. When we cannot be present, we should say the prayers or pray with the congregation uh, as best we can. So, for example, if you can't be here for whatever reason, we start the liturgy at 9.30. It would be nice to be able to at least say some prayers at 9.30 with us. Years ago, when I was a priest in Dublin, Texas, I had, a, I had an elderly lady who understood this principle all too well. And she was such an example to me. So she, she had gone into a nursing home because her husband had got, been put in a nursing home. So she went in with him and he died. So she could have gotten out, but she didn't. She stayed there. But she wanted to come to church every Sunday. She had no automobile. So we would pick her up and take her to church. Sometimes, since so she was 80, she couldn't make it to church. So what she would do, we had an agreement that, that, she, that I would take her communion after the service was over. But in the meantime, at 9 o'clock, which is when the service started, she got out her service book. And she prayed every prayer in there while we were. So when I got there with communion, she was ready. Uh, and that's what this preparation is. That's what we should do. And it doesn't have to be, you know, we don't have to do the whole service. She liked to do the whole service. I let her. I didn't, it wasn't hurting her. I let her. You know, if I think it's causing spiritual damage, I may tell you to tone it down and you, you may do the same. But in any case, everybody's different, but she, she could do the whole thing and it didn't affect her in the least, but she hated to miss. Oh, she hated to miss. She wanted to be there uh, so badly. Uh, so sometimes it's just a matter of when we're not there uh, or when we can't be there to just do something simple at the time when everybody else starts. So what I often recommend is say the Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy upon us, the Our Father, 
the Gloria Patri, glory be to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever and of the ages of ages, amen, and the Hail Mary. It takes one minute, one minute, to, and we're, union, we're in union, we're united with the faithful praying. We should do that. So our, that's our responsibility, I think, as we become into, come into Christ. Our genealogy, we have a genealogy. We, we are all baptized and chrismated into the church. So the church doesn't open the doors and say anybody can come. Well, anybody can come, but under limited terms. We are all baptized into the faith. We are all chrismated into the Orthodox Church. We are, if we're clergy, we will be ordained in the apostolic succession. There is a lineage. There's a, there's a funnel, if you will, down to the truth for all of us. And we must come into that, that funnel, come into that lineage, that narrow lineage. Uh, our genealogy is in Christ. It isn't any other way. Some people say, well, what about all the people who didn't believe in Christ? And what about before the, before the redemption, before the incarnation, things like that? We know that no one can be saved except through Christ. We do not know whom Christ will save. So our, our attitude has, C.S. Lewis, by the way, our attitude has to be that this is the way, the truth, and life. This is what Jesus said. And we follow that. Ask all the questions you want. The fact of the matter is, this is what he said, and we have to live by this. If he's the only way then we need to be real, real careful about how we manipulate our way through it in response to it. This is not a game. This is eternity talking. Uh, and it's serious. God's mercy is not meant to give us, help us to slack up, but to, to find his mercy and to respond to it in love and devotion. Uh, so our genealogy is to be in his church, to be among his faithful uh, it is our, that is our genealogy. You know, it, the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, the Jewish genealogy went back to the high priesthood of Aaron, uh, in, you know, the high priest of Aaron. But, but the priesthood, the genealogy, and all the genealogies tended to point toward that, that temple priesthood uh, genealogy. But the genealogies in Matthew and Luke predate that, or they go back to circumstances that predate that. One, Matthew going back to, to Abraham, and the second, uh, Luke going back to Adam in the beginning. So the priesthood is dependent on those stories. Uh, and they, they tell us something about what we're doing. We're not, we didn't change Judaism. We, we have fulfilled it. And what we're doing is very Jewish. And what, by the way, I, I guess I shouldn't say this since we're, out there online, but what's being done in Judaism can be arguably, can arguably be, be stated to have changed in the first several centuries. Uh, and I might make people mad saying that, but Margaret Barker, the Old Testament scholar, uh, certainly would bring up that point with great uh, evidence. Uh, don't go out and buy her books, by the way. You probably wouldn't understand and you get bored and, and mad, but. Uh, uh, most of us are not looking for that kind of detail. You know, scholars are, are interesting. They can have wonderful points and be a lot of fun to read, but sometimes they just beat you down with this stuff. And you might be arguing that I'm doing that too. I'm sorry. Uh, Christian baptism. The newly baptized are generally clothed in white linen garb. And it, and, and it varies. We can put them in white garb or sometimes just put a little linen over the head. Uh, chrismation the same way, put a white, I notice you do that here, uh, at least on one occasion you did. So, um, <clears throat> so the do, in, the, in the early centuries of the church's life, the newly baptized attended daily mass during the week. Uh, the baptisms were only done on Pascha, on Easter. So during the week following, uh, every day, uh, if you know the liturgical color is white, but every day, uh, there's a daily mass assigned. We don't have to do it, but it's assigned. Uh, and those who were newly baptized were required to be at those masses, wearing their white vestments for eight days. Uh, the last Sunday, what we know as Low Sunday, was called Sabado in Albis, the Sabbath in white, uh, because it was the last Sunday where they'd wear their white, their baptismal garments. Uh, so... They represent our priestly assignments, the assignments of all of us as the priests of all priesthood of all believers. You have 
each of us as clergy and all of us as priests. We all have priestly responsibility. Uh, and in that regard, then, we have work to do. Uh, and, and part of it is clean up of the temple as a regular duty. Some of the priests had to clean the temple up. You know, I mean, talking about sacrificing animals, it got to be pretty messy. Uh, so uh, we have cleanup to do. But the cleanup starts right here. It's called repentance. Each of us has clean up the, clean up the temple to do in repentance. Uh, lastly, uh, we need to learn the mystical tradition of the church. And that is that we open ourselves to God, we learn about the faith, read about it, find out as much as we can about it, and begin to live it. Uh, those are qualities that, uh, that lead us into this. It's much a demeanor as it is an activity. Notice I always say it's activity and actions. It is understanding and being able to do it. Uh, they're both. Uh, and I'll just, I just want to end with Peter Kraft and three things he says here that I think sum this up. And the next time then we'll look at the life of St. John of Kronstadt, the patron saint of priests and what he shows us how to live this. Uh, this author says, the sacrifice of time it takes to go to church is a deliberate act of choice to give something precious, a little of one's lifetime to the enemy. The enemy is God. This is the snakebite letters by Peter Kraft. The snakebite, there are a series of letters. If you've read C.S. Lewis, the screw tape letters, this is the same thing, but carried a little further. I've mentioned some of this in past lessons. Uh, so the enemy is God, and the person who's speaking is the devil. The sacrifice of time it takes to go to church is a deliberate act of choice to give something precious, a little of one's lifetime, to the enemy for no earthly practical reason. Then he says, see if I can get this page to turn. One reason we have a lot to fear from the simple fact of regular church attendance is that this is virtually the only public testimony to their faith that any of them are ever required to give today. It is a litmus test, a loyalty test. So... We shouldn't miss unless we have to. And lastly, don't let them see the church as the awfully big thing it is, spread out in history, rich with saints and sages and martyrs. The little church in his neighborhood must never be seen as the same church as that church, or the same church as the church in heaven, full of witnesses who are watching his earthly struggle now through heavenly windows. Wow. So... We have a priesthood. We have a priesthood. It's all of us, each and every one of us. No matter what you may think of yourself as not being significant, that's wrong. We are all significant. And, and all of eternity manifests itself within us as we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. So we want to learn that uh, and see the temple stories as reflecting the vocation of each one of us because God is waiting for us to respond to him and to be the people he wants us to be. Uh, and, and if you don't agree with that, then, then go out and find something that parallels it in the world. I assure you it isn't out there. Uh, it's all self-delusion. Uh, but this is the truth. I am the way and the truth. No one comes to the Father but by me. This is a discovery of that. Thank you.